You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Feklis Ahmed is the vice president and co-founder of Darfur Youth of Tomorrow, an organization raising awareness in her community of the violence and needs of Darfur. She is also a writer and now working on a book called Bridge Between, an autobiography in poetic form to share her experience and raise awareness about Sudan. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. We were speaking with Gary Lawless, who um, first of all says to say hi. Hi. And he's a big fan of yours. Oh. He really you. likes your poetry. <laughs> thank you so much. How did you start writing poetry? Um, I started writing poetry when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, mainly because I was um, voiceless, I would say. Um, I was going through a lot in my life, um, adjusting in the United States from coming from Sudan Darfur, not being able to speak English, um, not having a sister in the house. I have three brothers <laughs> and I don't have a sister, so I, I kept a lot of my emotions to myself. And one day I was just in my room and picked up a, a pen and I started writing and at the beginning it didn't make any sense but it really helped in in terms of feeling better and just taking all of my stress and putting it in a piece of paper. You have an interesting story um, that has gained some national attention. <laughs> I, I think it, it was a really great spot that I, I saw you on initially with Ellen DeGeneres on The Ellen Show mm -hmm. and there was a lot of clapping and cheering and maybe a little crying on your part. A lot. A lot of crying. A lot of crying. <laughs> because she recognized that you, the work that you had done to put yourself um, through college. Mm -hmm. And she paid off $22,000 worth of college debt. I know. Which amazing. is really amazing. Yeah. But the more amazing thing, I think, is that you um, incorporated her show. And first of all, it's positivity. Yes. But also, it's English mm -hmm. to better learn the language. Yep. It is. So talk to me about that. Yeah, it was learning the English and also learning about the American culture and also learning about how to be a decent human or a good human. Like that's what Ellen is for me. She has been an inspiration since the first time I watched her show. Obviously not even being able to understand anything, but the way she came off on TV and constantly smiling and constantly dancing, which is something I love to do since I was really young. 
um, and it's something that we did a lot in my community back home in Sudan. So I related to her right away and she just gave me good vibes. As we say, she gave me the good vibes and I never stopped watching her show and I still do until today because it's so positive and um, it brings me out of the place where I was in at the time when I was really sad and homesick and um, just needed needed the place where I felt comfortable and watching her show did that for me. How old were you when you came to the United States? I was uh, about 12 years old, yeah. And did you directly come to Maine? I did, I directly. Our flight was from uh, Cairo to JFK and then JFK to Portland, Maine. That's a pretty big culture shock, I would think. For sure, <laughs> for sure. It is. It still is a cultural shock, and we've been here since 2006, so... Um, but we're learning, trying to find ways to adjust, for sure. Do you think that... Um, well, you talked about having no sisters, only brothers mm -hmm. in your house. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it is often easier to share things with other women? Or was this just in your family? Yeah, I think it's just in my family, but also in my culture. Um, and I think because back home I used to have cousins, even when I didn't have a sister. So we spent most of our time together. And if there was something going on, it would be easy to re relate to my struggles and the things that I was facing as a female with my cousins than to my brothers. Uh, plus, my brothers are younger than me, so I didn't want to put any of my issues onto my younger siblings. Um, so that's, I think, why it was really difficult, because the age and also because it's just a cultural thing, I guess, or a family thing. Um, in our family, we, we kind of tend to have the boys hang out with the boys and the girls hang out, unless there is something major. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. You also had the responsibility in some ways of um, yeah. your younger brothers when you came over here. Mm -hmm. So you probably, I mean, I'm the oldest of 10 children, <laughs> and I know that I wanted to always make things good yes. for my younger brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Did you feel the same way? Of course, of course, and I still do the same. Um, I feel the same way, and I think my my energy and my strive to success, it's, it's my siblings. And being the oldest child, I want to pave the way for them. I want to give, set an example. I want to be their role model because they don't need to look somewhere else. They can look right in their family, right in their, you know, in the immediate family. And they can see their sister is doing great things. And therefore, they have the motivation and the courage to continue. So I did feel like that since I was very young. I mean, I my mom gave me a lot of responsibilities since I was 10. Um, and cooking, cleaning, um, and making sure that, that doing things that united the family. And um, I've been doing that ever since. And mostly it's for my brothers. And uh, sometimes it's annoying, <laughs> for sure. But for the most part, I, I see how, um, how my efforts are appreciated and how it helps them to grow and, and have a positive, uh, I guess, role model in the family. It's been important for you to find your own voice personally, but also to share the stories of Darfur and Sudan. What is it that you would like people to know about what's going on over there? Um, 
I mean, what's going on in Darfur is something that have been talked about for a long time. Um, <clears throat> there is a genocide happening in Darfur, but um, no one is taking action. There's a lot of innocent civilians who are humans and deserve attention and deserve the world, all of us in the world and the international community to pay attention to what's going on because we said that whenever there is a genocide or whenever there is something that is inhumane, we would speak up for those who are incapable. So that's what I have been doing in the raising awareness and telling people exactly what is going on uh, because they don't see that in the media. It's not a lot of coverage that is happening. Um, and honestly, we don't even know how this genocide started or um, for what causes. But to me, that is not what I care about. I just care about saving those innocent civilians uh, and people that are I consider my role models and consider uh, like my mothers to me. And I, I want to do whatever I can since I am in a safe place and I'm capable of speaking up to use my voice to speak up on behalf of them. Why do you think we have not been paying enough attention. Well, what is it that is causing us to somehow look away? Yeah, for sure, because the, as I said, there is not enough media coverage to tell you exactly what's happening in Darfur. But also because when a lot of people tend to, when they're safe and they're happy and they don't feel like they're targeted, it's, it's okay to avoid what's happening outside of your home and to look away. So it's easy and nobody wants to get involved because they think it couldn't happen to them. It couldn't happen to their own family. It couldn't happen to their own country. And we thought the same thing. Nobody thought in Darfur that anything could happen in our region. But the matter of fact is anything is possible and in a matter of seconds, a genocide could start anywhere in the world for no unknown reason, yeah. How was your family able to get out? Mm -hmm. Well, my family, um, my immediate family lived in Khartoum. They didn't initially lived in Darfur at the time when the genocide started. So for us, it was really simple and it was my parents who made the decision since we were really young to get tickets and to fly and to find the nearest UN office, the United Nations building, so that we could apply for asylum. And, and that's what my parents did, went to Cairo, Egypt, and um, did a case on seeking asylum. And we were resettled, after two years, resettled into the US. So somehow your family was able to um, get out of a dangerous situation, but not every family is. Exactly, and not every family is. And even those like us who are in the diaspora, it's not just because we're in the, the genocide, we didn't see it and we didn't physically actually experience it. It doesn't mean that we are safe. I, I still feel like I'm not safe. I still, because my family, my other family members are not safe. And where actually my roots and my grandpa grandfather and grandmother grew up i'm not able to see that ever again because of what's going on so i still feel all the trauma the violence it's it's a constant nightmare for me as well um, regardless of where i am in the world and if this genocide still continues that's i think that's how i will still uh, those feelings will still remain it must have been hard to 
have this very dramatic change in your life when you were 12 mm-hmm. um, to come to not only a new country but a very different state, a very different city, um, and just have to deal with that in yeah. a new language and a new set of cultures and new friends mm-hmm. and then also know that this very big thing is still happening um, back where you're from. Yeah. So how, as a 12-year-old, how did you deal with that? Yeah, it wasn't easy, and I'm still finding ways to cope with that. Um, but as I said earlier, it was poetry that I, s- I still go and stress and put all of my anger and happiness and my things that I remember from home, all of the memories that I have, I still write those down. Um, and what helps me is when I call home, that's something that I love to do on constant basis call my grandmother call my cousins call my friends that I went to school with those memories bring me joy and give me hope that and give me motivation to continue working the job that I'm doing here in the U.S. whether it's working with youth or if it's activism um, all of those things happen because I call home and I, I hear the voices of people that I I love so much and give me hope that for a better future. You finished college at the University of Southern Maine. Uh-huh. And still a student. And you're still a student. <laughs> you're getting your master's degree now. I am. And you've become a teacher. Mm-hmm. So you're still living with your own past, but mm-hmm. now you are a role model for other students. Mm-hmm. So that's also an interesting balance point. Yeah, for sure. I do. I I started my, um, I guess, my career in education because of uh, the opportunity that came from the AmeriCorps program. It's a very wonderful program, and right after I finished college, it just came out of nowhere, um, and I, I took it. I'm, I'm one of those people who never let any opportunities pass me by, so when I heard about the AmeriCorps program, I signed up right away. It took me a couple of minutes to sign up, and... I think within a week I was I was hired to work as um, an educator here in the Portland area and somehow my host side job was Casco Bay High School where I went to school which was so refreshing and I felt so comfortable because I knew that I was going home like Casco Bay is home for me it's comfort it's, it's people that I know I didn't hesitate um, although I had goosebumps and butterflies, of course, as you know, as someone who's starting something new, but I knew that I had support. I knew that I had teachers who would support me and help me and guide me in any way that they could, and that's what they did. And um, I just finished my two-year uh, term with AmeriCorps, which was sad, but also uh, so exciting because I'm so ready for the next chapter in my life and being able to finish grad school and continue on into a different path in life. From what I understand, you were one of the first alum alumni mm-hmm. to return to Casco Bay High School. Mm-hmm. Um, Casco Bay High School is actually not very old. It's a relatively 
new school it and is. there's a big focus on experiential learning. Mm-hmm. How did that help you in particular as you were um, mm-hmm. trying to gain your own education as a high schooler? Yeah, it was really refreshing. I mean, when I was in Sudan, I went to a traditional school um, for my middle school. It was really traditional. And we always had t- our teachers who were, of course, in front of the classroom, you know, lecturing away, just waiting for answers, regardless of where they came from, not knowing if we actually understood anything, um, never providing opportunity to actually critically think or think in our own or go outside to see how actually education is related into so many other things. So I, I, I knew that I was at a disadvantage when I was in Sudan because I, I was never in a place where I felt like I was actually learning. Um, and Casco Bay High School is where my education happened in the U.S., where it began. And from the first week, like even uh, my teachers, I was an ELL student, but that didn't matter. I was still with the other students, mainstream students. Um, in all of their classes and then when it came to English class I would be with the ELL students uh, but even within our ELL classes our teachers were not lecturing they were actually giving us tools and giving us uh, activities that helped us think in our own be our own individual person and that's what is happening at Casco Bay High School until today, giving students a chance to learn and to also find things on their own. Um, not to just depend on a textbook, but to depend on everything, to depend on working together as a collective group, working together as an individual, working together as a community, uh, and knowing how to build a community, because essentially that is very important. Um, and. I really love that a lot and I'm trying to take all of those positive things that I've learned from CBHS and to hold it very close and dear to me so I can share it with my siblings or with other students that I might come across. How did you end up at Casco Bay High School in the first place? Yeah, I was I was just saying that in the AmeriCorps program when I first applied, uh, they were they they said that here in the Portland area, this is where I would be working, and um, they decided that Casco Bay High School would be the right fit for me. So it wasn't something that I chose, but it was a gift <laughs> for me, I guess. And when you originally went there as a student, it's mm-hmm. one of the, you don't get assigned there automatically. It's something that you mm-hmm. actually have to choose. Is that right? Yes, it's true. It's something that I chose, and it was uh, one of the mentors that I. Um, met when I first came to the U.S. His name is Mr. Awis. He's originally from Somalia and uh, he was talking to me, talking about the different options, Casco Bay, Portland High School, or Deering, and he gave me all of the information about those schools. And he said, you should go to Casco Bay because it's a new school, you will not have a lot of friends, and that's going to push you to speak more English and help you better, you know, just get acclimated to the new culture and the new environment and I was like no way I want to go to Portland because there's a lot of Arabic speakers and I want to make sure that I I maintain my language and he's like you're not you're never gonna learn English if you go to Portland because there is a huge population of Arabic speakers and they tend to get together and they tend to speak Arabic so 
eventually I listened to his uh, <laughs> his advice and I did go to Cascobay because of his advice and um, how he helped me make that decision. What did your parents think of, of that idea to go from possibly Portland High School where you would have a group of friends mm-hmm. to a completely different high school where you would have to be more independent? Yeah, I don't think my parents had any idea about the schools even, so they didn't mind and they trusted Mr. Awis. They knew him from the community and he, they saw him at the local mosque, so his advice was already, okay, listen to Mr. Awis. There was no questions about it because they trusted him, yeah. So, and they didn't have a lot of knowledge about the other schools in the area since we were new to Portland. What has it been like to um, to, to be Muslim mm-hmm. in Portland? I know that we have more and more people who are, mm-hmm. but it's still not a big group of people who are, even now. Yeah. Um, at the beginning, I think it, I would say because I was um, young and I didn't know how to uh, speak the truth or advocate for myself uh, in terms of being Muslim. Um, but now that I've grown up and understand even the Islamic religion even more, I feel more confident and I feel safe practicing Islam anywhere in the world, especially in Portland, Maine. Uh, because I know that uh, my religion is very peaceful and it brings a lot of joy and peace and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, So people that don't know what Islam is or don't know a lot about Muslim people just don't know what the actual religion is and that's what I, I always try to find someone that actually just want to know and want to want to hear about actually and listen to a Muslim rather than um, getting their information from media or from just the stereotypes basically. Um, so I don't and I have a lot of friends here that have a lot of support, especially um, people that are not even Muslim who, who give me a comfort place where I can practice and be with them and feel feel normal, which which is great. Tell me about working on this book. Yes. What has that been like for you? <laughs> it's been really fun. <laughs> um, as I said, I, I mean, I think poetry is something that runs in my blood now, <laughs> and I love writing. So. Um, I wanted to, originally I wanted to just write it to keep it to myself, like I wanted to write this book and keep it to myself because I want to go back and read it over and over again and just remember even how it was when I first came here because some of the poetry is about the beginning of, of being lost and being in a new environment. So I wanted to revisit that. Um, and then one of my teachers, I was writing a poem one day and she came and she was like this is amazing I want to keep reading this and you should totally put it on a book somewhere because I would buy it (laughs) and that's where the idea came from Um, mostly because I wanted to share it with people that have supported me and helped me to see where my mindset where my mindset was Um, like my English teachers and to see my improvement in my writing because at the beginning, I started just with alphabets, and here I am writing a 10-page paper or like a five-page uh, five poem, and it's 
all of because of their efforts it's all because of their hard work and because of their trust in in, in me as a student and knowing that uh, eventually I will get I will get to this point so writing it has been really fun and it's been like I was saying very uh, stress free zone for me and it, I bring out all of the energy about exactly being a Muslim in in Maine and how that has has even made me stronger person or how being a daughter at home how is that have made me a different and a stronger person and how being a student and a first you know first generation graduate from college how does that make me feel all of those things that are happening in my life putting it somewhere that I can go back one day and relive my life all over again just by reading texts what type of um, what type of comments have you gotten from other young people who have perhaps sought asylum themselves, have maybe come to the United States because they were leaving places of genocide or violence? Do you find that you've been considered a role model? Do people give you feedback that's positive or? Yeah, I've gotten, I've gotten, I've always been getting positive feedback, and it is really amazing because it gives me more motivation to even do bigger and better things. Um, and it is true when I was growing up, and until even this day, maybe very recently, where I finally found people that I call role models, people that look like me, that are from the African continent, people that have started from from just the alphabet to now being English teachers or being lawyers or being, you know, police women, like all of that. I can just say that recently I've found maybe one or two people that are role models that are just like me. Um, and that's what I want to do for this younger generation. And when I hear that, oh, Eccles, you are my role model because of this, it brings a lot of joy. Um, and I'm so happy because that's what they need. Things that I wasn't able to have when I was their age, now they can say, okay, I have someone to look up to. And that's, that's, that's great. And I hope that it gives them the whatever that they need to keep going. I guess from my story, if it's just being a motivational person or giving them hope or whatever it is, I, I hope that they're getting it so that they could find their success in their own life. I appreciate your coming in and talking with me today and also for being one of our main live speakers, which um, is very exciting for me as the host of Main Live. Um, it's my fifth time and having having working with people like you who are willing to share their stories is really a blessing for me. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Eklis Ahmed, who is the vice president and co-founder of Darfur Youth of Tomorrow and is also currently writing an autobiography in poetic form to share her experience and raise awareness about Sudan. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. 
Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.